Thank you for that lovely introduction. I am Mrs. Tina Colon Williams. <laughs> Here to share the word with you today. Oh, thank you, the clicker, yes. Oh, beautiful. Um, so for those of you who weren't around last week, uh, you are today joining us for part two of a two-part teaching series on the topic of sin. Everybody's favorite topic here, I'm pretty sure. One of those non-controversial topics that church people really love to non-anxiously engage with, yes? So here we are. Last Sunday, um, Josh had some good news for us about sin, which he um, defined as basically missing the mark. Uh, and he shared with us three main points. One is that while sin is bad, being a sinner is reality. Talked about how Jesus died to not make a big deal out of our sin. And the way out of our sin is through confession, repentance, and forgiveness. Bringing it into the light and moving forward. If you didn't get a chance to hear it, I do encourage you to listen online. It's a good one. This week, we'll be continuing our conversation on sin by sharing a little bit about what happens after we receive God's forgiveness. We've been saved by the blood of Jesus, and here we are. What does that mean? Once we receive Jesus' transforming power in our lives, what does it actually mean for how, do we, how we relate to our habitual ingrained sins, our brokenness, our harmful behavior patterns? What does that look like for the long haul? Do you just stop sinning uh, or stop worrying about it? Or is there something else for us altogether? Now about me, I grew up in a faith context that was really, really big on being saved. We understood salvation is like, it's a 180, a total 180 conversion. There's the before Christ, and then there's the after, and, and you're basically two different people, right? When Jesus saves you, truly, really gets at you, really saves you, you are a new creation, dead to sin and alive to Christ. This is straight from the Bible, Romans 6. I always understood what a testimony was as telling the story of a complete turnaround in your life, usually the one that happened when um, you came into relationship with Jesus. And I personally, I have heard and seen so many of those turnaround testimony stories. And it's incredibly powerful to witness. Really and truly, I know people who used to be suicidal. But since entering into a relationship with Jesus, they now know peace and life and joy in a totally different way and have never gone back to that dark place again. Unexplainable, but through the power of Jesus Christ. I've heard testimonies from people who used to drink to a blackout point of excess on a regular basis as the only way to have fun and relax. But since accepting Jesus and his salvation, now they can enjoy themselves without turning to alcohol at all. People who used to be serial heartbreakers, hopping from relationship to relationship, afraid of commitment, who after getting saved, finally got married, settled down, built a family. People who once did drugs, but are now sober, who once stole people's money for a living, but are now clean, who once struggled with eating disorders or addiction to pornography or obsession about performance and achievement, but now are confident in who they are as a child of God, committed to building God's kingdom in the world without those old idols holding them back. For me, these turnarounds from sinner to saved were kind of proof that God really can and does change us. It's real, I've seen it, and it's amazing. And part of that is why it can feel extra confusing and painful when I look honestly at my own life sometimes and realize that more than two decades into my walk with Jesus, I'm still wrestling with some of the same core sin patterns I have dealt with my whole life. I was once a people pleaser who freaked out about what other people think of me, but then I found Jesus, and now, I'm still a people preacher who freaks out about what other people think about me. What kind of testimony is that? I mean, now listen, I know I've been saved. 
okay? I believe it. I believe it sincerely in my bones. I have been set free from the shackles of sin by the blood of the lamb. I know that I'm a friend of God. And during these years as a follower of the way of Jesus, I have truly come to believe that I have access to the same power that awakened Jesus Christ from the dead. Y'all too. And yet, somehow, I still wake up every day feeling just as much a sinner as I've always been in some ways. I'm self-centered. I'm short-tempered with my kids. I'm a workaholic who is somehow also a really bad procrastinator. I don't keep my word, and then I get really defensive when I'm called out on it. I spend way too much money on overpriced food and coffee, and I don't give to the poor. I regularly contort myself to other people's expectations instead of obeying God. I tell people that I'll call them back, and then I don't because I don't feel like it, and then I avoid them by refusing to answer the text messages that they send me later as an immature way to escape the shame of acknowledging my failure. The list goes on, but I think you get the point. I know better, I really do, but I don't always do better, not at all. And I don't know, there's a part of me that thinks still that life ultimately is supposed to be a kind of plateau experience, right? Like where maybe at first you're struggling up the Rocky Mountain of whatever brokenness pattern you've been dealing with for years, but then in an intense and not fully explainable spiritual encounter, maybe like at a conference or something, or in a tearful private worship experience in your room, the spirit of Jesus uh, metaphorically grabs you by the hand and pulls you up to a level place, right? And in an eye-opening, once and for all, aha moment, you finally understand that you no longer have to live in the broken and unhelpful way that you've been living because Jesus is in charge now and he loves you. And so there on the plateau, the open and even place, you stay forever, spacious, peaceful, righteous, having conquered the struggle of whatever sin pattern of the past chapter completely and for the rest of all time. And from the plateau, you get to testify about how Jesus brought you out of those unhealthy sin patterns, and now you're awesome, but only because of his salvation. And through the powerful witness of your life, people come to Jesus, and they get to be set free from their sin too. Has anyone ever felt like that's how life is supposed to work? Just me? Oh, man. Okay, I'm not alone. <laughs> I mean, shouldn't it? If Jesus saved us from our sins, doesn't that mean we shouldn't have to keep struggling with our sins? Is, isn't that what he died for? So if we're still struggling with our sin, even after we've entered into a sincere and wholehearted relationship with Jesus, what does that say about us? Doesn't that mean that we messed up something here and we need to do better and work harder so, to make sure we actually arrive at a place of real salvation from our sinfulness? Or maybe, maybe we're thinking about it all wrong. And what we need to do is to be free, to give up the fight against our brokenness altogether and just embrace it. Is, is that what Jesus means when he says he saves us from our sin? Welcome to the angst of my mind, guys. Okay, thankfully and unsurprisingly, the scriptures are not silent on these big existential questions of sin and our human condition as sinners who are trying to follow Jesus. So for the rest of our time together, we're going to be looking at three ways that we can get tripped up. We can get confused about the role that sin plays in our lifelong walk with Jesus, using Paul's letter to the church in Rome as our guide. Three lies, I guess, that it can be very easy to believe about sin and salvation. Sin. <laughs> um, the first is that Jesus saved me from being a sinner. Second is that Jesus accepts me as I am, so I don't need to work on my sin anymore. And the third is that life is a trial and I am the accused. 
I think all three of these can be genuinely tempting frameworks to relate to our sin, and all of them can be genuinely unhelpful. Because the truth is, we are all sinners, like it or not, for the rest of our lives, and Jesus rescues us from having to pretend otherwise. We are all called to move out of our sin and into maturity, into the likeness of Christ, hand in hand with Jesus. And we no longer have to live as if we are on trial because Jesus, our advocate, frees us from the voice of the accuser once and for all. So we'll take these. Oh, sorry. I meant to show you these. See? Um, We'll take these one at a time. But before we dive in, I would love to pray for us. Please join me. Holy Spirit, um, God, we come to you humility and in brokenness, eager to hear a word from you, eager to hear good news from your word that is alive and active. Holy Spirit, come. Would you fill this place even more? You're already here. I know that you're here. But open us up to be present to what you're saying to each one of us. Wake us up to the truth of your gospel in and through our brokenness. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so turning to these lies that we can believe about sin and our sinfulness. The first um, is just this idea, like Jesus saved me from being a sinner. Jesus saved me so that I cannot be a sinner anymore. Um, I think the first great distortion of the way of Jesus is for us to believe that the point of our salvation is to move beyond our state of sinfulness into a state of righteousness immediately and forever, and to bring others along with us. It's a very reasonable thing to believe. And I think, honestly, it's pretty biblical, too, depending on what part of the Bible that you're reading. The epistles, these letters to different churches at the end of the Bible, are full of these sections of long lists of things that you just stop doing. You don't do anymore once you become a Christian and embrace the way of Jesus. Um, there's this passage from uh, Ephesians 5 from, as an example. But among you, there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure. No immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. It's right there. As we read these do not sin lists in isolation, the takeaway can feel pretty clear. If you're living a Christian life, I mean really living a Christian life, that means you're no longer doing the bad things that you used to do. And if you continue to do those bad things, you're probably not really a Christian and should be weeded out and excluded from the family of God until you can get yourself together. We have to be careful. Beware of this. Because there could be a direction we go here that it looks more like the spirit of religion than the spirit of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It sounds so righteous, right? but it can be a terrible way to live. Believe me, I tried it. And apparently, so have plenty of people in the early church. If you take the Apostle Paul, for example, he is somebody who for sure has a 180 testimony story, no? He once was a religious leader who hated Jesus and killed Christians. And then he had a literal fall off your high horse conversion moment. He was blind and then he could see. Classic night and day transformation, right? And he went on to become a church planter and author of a good chunk of the Bible, including a bunch of the parts about sin and righteousness. You'd think that of all people, 
Paul would have figured out how to walk the Jesus way free from his sin patterns, right? But the scriptures tell us a different story, a story of someone who was perpetually struggling with his own sin, even after Jesus called him out of his former way of life. We'll pick it up in Romans chapter 7. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? This is the Apostle Paul speaking. Can anyone relate to this feeling? I know that I can. For years, um, I've taken on this New Year's practice. Happy New Year, everyone. A New Year's practice of reading through all my journals for the past year, just like in chronological order. And I journal a lot, y'all, like too much. So this is like voluminous journals. It takes me a long, long time, lots of pages, plenty of data to sift through as I evaluate how I've lived and how I would like to live moving forward. And quite frankly, most of the time, I feel pretty embarrassed about what I'm reading because every single year, kind of sound like a broken record, I have the same revelations, like the same aha moments about the same topics over and over again. <laughs> I see myself wrestling with these things, with overfunctioning, being defensive and mean to my husband, being anxious about whether my friends are mad at me. And I think to myself, like, these are the same problems I had last year. I remember, I read it, it's the same thing. Um, the reality is, by the end of my journal reading exercise, I actually do feel really encouraged because I do see transformation, growth, growing clarity on who I want to be, growing self-awareness about the difference between, who, um, between that person and who I currently am. But sometimes knowing what I'm supposed to be doing doesn't mean I actually do it. And as I experience God's grace and God's speech in these areas of my life, the more I do this exercise and read how I'm learning over the years, it, it, I'm seeing it doesn't make the wrestling go away. A wise friend of mine, Shiloh Powell, she used to be a worship leader here, she once explained to me, uh, she said something, I don't even think she knows that she said this, it was deep, that like she doesn't understand growth as like a linear chart. Sometimes we want growth to be a linear chart up and to the right. We're growing, we're maturing, and we're going this way. Um, but she explained that growth can feel like a spiral just going down, deeper and deeper and deeper. We circle back around the same brokenness patterns again and again, but we're not staying still. Each time we're going deeper and wiser, and there are new textures to how we're interacting with it. Um, this 
way of understanding maturing and growth can feel like the opposite of my plateau vision, right? So I don't like it. <laughs> but I do relate to it. Um, and when I'm, at least when I'm actually brave enough to be honest with myself about how life is going. And being honest with ourselves and with others about our sin is not necessarily our default state of being, is it? It's actually really hard. But the alternative to this kind of honesty is a sort of icky, trapped mindset that doesn't really lead to life at all. When we get in our heads that the end goal of our salvation is sin eradication or sin management, we can become self-righteous or we can become pretenders. And it's not a good luck, God, good look for us. Josh pointed uh, at this self-righteous posture in last week's sermon when he walked us through the parable of the two men praying, right? One was a Pharisee, and one understood himself to be a sinner, and the Pharisee's prayer was basically the one that was like, thank God I'm not like one of those people who do the wrong thing. I tithe, I follow the rules, go me. We all know those people. They're annoying, right? But let's not get confused. We are all also in danger of being those people. Um, especially especially maybe sometimes even if we're church folk. We can get in a little bit of a self-righteousness mode when we think that because we've been saved from our sin, we no longer need to acknowledge that we still struggle with it, or it would be bad for us to acknowledge that we still struggle with it. The focus is often on how far we've come, how sadly far behind others still are. It's not just a religious people problem, by the way. We can all get self-righteous about all sorts of stuff, distancing ourselves from the other people who, unlike us, are still stuck in some kind of sin pattern. You know, those sexually promiscuous people, those overly sensitive people, those crazy racist Trump supporters over there, or those small-minded conservative Christians. Whatever your, at least I'm not those people, category might be, we all can fall into a mindset that says, yeah, I have my moments, but I'm nowhere near as bad as that guy. Um, or maybe it's not actually about self-righteousness or self-awareness. Maybe we know full well that we do still struggle with our own sin, but it can become a pretending problem where we intentionally hide our sinfulness from the view of others for the sake of our reputation. If salvation is supposed to have set us free from our sin already, then the fact that we struggle with it is like really, 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 really bad, and we should probably hide that from people. And we see the bad fruit of this all the time, don't we? As like big shot Christian leader after another is caught in the news headlines for some sort of horrific scandal, uh, sexual abuse or embezzling funds or infidelity, and people are like, this came out of nowhere. That is what happens when we refuse to look honestly at our own sinfulness or when we intentionally refuse to let it see the light of day. When being saved from our sins means we can't be sinners anymore, we're not supposed to be sinners anymore, then over time our testimony can end up getting distorted. We can become self-righteous pretenders and ultimately fall flat on our face, exhausted from the effort of always trying to avoid or cover up our own sinfulness. That doesn't look anything like good news or freedom. Because the reality is sin is always right there. Sinful nature warring within us even when we ignore it or deny it. Truth of the matter is, Jesus didn't save us so that we could immediately stop being sinners. We're sinners, we're gonna be sinners until we are dead. Rather, Jesus' rescue truly and deeply frees us up to stop pretending and to bring our sinful state into the light and, as we do so, to receive radical transformation that only Jesus can bring over and over again. 
First John chapter 1 puts it this way. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. Jesus's gospel invitation is to admit that we are sinners and to walk in the light. Walking in the light doesn't look like being perfect. It looks like telling the truth. Telling the truth, yes, about the ways we've been set free and transformed, and also about our sinfulness over and over again for the rest of our lives. No need to pretend we're more awesome than we are. No need to hide things in secrecy and shame. In the light of salvation, we get to be fully seen and fully loved and not alone in our ongoing struggle with our sinful nature without any shred of shame. We have... Um, I lead a, help lead a Thursday night home group at my house. And during our Thursday night home group this past week, a wise woman in the group said this. She said that the fact that we're all sinners is actually really good news, which was weird to me when I first heard it. I was like, how is that good news? She said it's good news because Jesus pretty much only hangs out with sinners. Think about it. All those dinner parties, all that time with his disciples, the table always seemed to be full with people the Bible unapologetically calls sinners. Tax collectors, outcasts, sinners. So if we say that we're not sinners, then maybe that means we're not actually at the table with him in the same way. But if we are, we get invited to the feast. So if the primary point of our salvation isn't to stop being sinners, maybe the point is to be sinners who live their full lives at the table with Jesus. Beloved sinners in light-filled communion with our sin sinless Savior and with one another on a journey with him for the long haul. That is indeed good news. So there can be an alternate mindset, I think, when it comes to our sinfulness that can really easily trip us up. And I think it can be a mis misinterpretation of the gospel, a subtle distortion that could be equally dangerous, like maybe the flip side of pursuing a kind of self-righteousness. And this is the thought that since I'm never gonna be able to fully conquer my sin in this lifetime, I might as well embrace it, right? I think at the beginning, it could start out almost like a, a sin as disability mindset. Maybe like we know there's something not quite right about us, something that's not as it should be in the world. Maybe it could be our pride, our gluttony, our workaholism, our lust for things we don't currently have, our urgent need for instant gratification, whatever it is, the way we run our mouth and say what we feel without thinking about how it's received and repeatedly hurt other people's feelings. Whatever it is, for sure, it's not great, but it's there, and apparently we can't fix it. So it can be tempting to believe that we should probably just get used to it and then make some reasonable accommodations around it so we can live our lives. We avoid hanging out around the people who are offended by our habitual sin issue, whatever it is. Or we just make it clear to others that the topic is off limits so we don't have to feel judged because Jesus loves me and forgave me and we're good. Or we come up with some other coping mechanism so it doesn't cause too much trouble for our careers and our friendships. In this way, we can subconsciously think to ourselves, life can continue peacefully and without disruption and what we get to do as people saved is bask in God's unconditional acceptance without ever having to deal with our sin. 
honestly, this approach to our sin might feel way more simple and sustainable than actually treating our sin as a harmful problem that with intentionality could still become a growth area. Spend enough time here though, we can end up getting super duper cozy with our brokenness. This can morph into a sort of sin as me, my identity mindset. Sure, I'm rude and kind of judgy, but that, that's just who I am. Yeah, I have empty sex on the regular because I don't know how to be alone with myself, but it's how I'm wired and I've come to peace with that. Okay, so what? So what if I'm addicted to binging TV or addicted to my own body image or addicted to scrolling Instagram wishing I had someone else's life instead of mine? This is what everybody does. It's just who we are. It is our condition. We're going to be sinners till the end of time and then maybe on the other side of it all, it'll be sorted. So for now, I need to accept myself and embrace it. Jesus loves me as I am. I'm saved by grace and not by work, so I'm gonna do me and not worry too much about sin or not sin and just live my life. Could this be what freedom from sin looks like? Freedom from the futile and crushing burden of actually having to really work on ourselves? I don't think so. I don't think this is the costly freedom Jesus lived and died for. According to the scriptures, if trying to be perfect on our own is futility, then just giving in and embracing our sinful desires as part of our identity on this side of heaven is slavery. Slavery is the opposite of freedom, and that is not what Jesus died for. The passage from Romans that we read from earlier talks about our sinful nature like as if it's a body of death. This language is all over the scriptures when we talk about sin. All that stuff got crucified with Jesus, put to death on the cross with Jesus. So we are to relate to our sin as we would to a dead thing. Pick it up in Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as the instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law, but under grace. More on that later, but I'll keep reading for now. And skipping ahead to Romans 8, the mind governed by the flesh, which is another word the Bible uses to talk about sinful nature, is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit, by the Spirit, you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. So what we see here is that even though our salvation doesn't magically zap away our sinfulness, which it would, but it doesn't always, it looks like there is still a very fundamental shift at play when it comes to how we relate to our sin as Jesus followers. And it's not just to give up and embrace our sin as an unfortunate, but not that bad ultimately part of who we are. It's to treat it as dead to us, no longer who we are, and to purposefully move in the direction of life. I think it's sort of like an abusive ex. Okay, this is an intense example. So bear with me here. I represent asylum seekers for a living, all right? So many of them are survivors of some form of severe domestic violence. And every one of my DV clients, at some point, has made a decision to leave their abusive ex behind. At some point, they come to this aha moment where they realize that their partner is never gonna change, 
and that the whole relationship has gone sour and it was no longer good for them or for others around them, right? So they pack their bags and they move out. This is the breakup moment. And the pattern typically follows from there. It's a story that is told over and over again. Usually follows that the abusive ex fights hard for them not to fully leave, right? The guy, and it's usually guy, but not always, hunts this person down wherever they go. They text constantly, obnoxious things, always trying to reach them from different numbers. You block, they still text. Or they show up at the mom's house begging for another chance. Or they have a run-in in the street in an out-of-nowhere out kind of confrontation. And there comes a point when it actually feels a lot easier to just let the guy move back in rather than to keep insisting that the relationship is over. But 100% of the time, without exception, that ends badly. The abusive ex doesn't actually love them, so the relationship will never bring forth life. So even though it's hard, even though it's tiring, it's always the best way forward to resolutely leave this loser behind, even when it means you have to leave them over and over again. Our sin, the ways that we habitually just aren't who we're called to be, don't live in life-giving ways, right? Our sin is a lot like an abusive ex. It bruises us, it bruises those around us, and as much as we are capable, we really can be capable of getting used to it and adjusting our lives around it and building a passable life, freedom looks like not settling for who we used to be but continually moving toward who we are becoming, which is someone who is no longer mastered by that toxic relationship. The call of God on our life is not a call to settle into our sin, but a call to maturity out of it. Scripture describes this as two selves. There's the old self, the death-giving, crucified with Christ sin self, and the new self, constantly being made new in the image of Christ. It says this in um, Ephesians. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. And I so wish it were a one and done. We put on the new self once and the old one goes in the trash. But as we all know, it's, it's more of a daily thing. Daily clothing ourselves with Christ and taking off the grave clothes, like a, like a, I think of the image of a little plant bending towards the sun, moving in the direction of that which nourishes. Um, it's more of a long, hard journey than a magic doorway most times, but the scriptures are very clear and the testimonies we've seen confirm it. There is a before and there is an after. The before is death and the after is life. And we're destined for life, not just in heaven, but in the here and now. And Philippians describes it beautifully. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. We're not there yet, won't be in this lifetime, but we do press on in this direction, moving toward maturity as we get closer and closer to who Christ is, which is free, completely free and completely not mastered by sin. This brings me to the last thing that we can believe, the last way that we get tripped up that we'll talk about, which is this idea, the feeling that life is a trial and I am the accused. This is a trap of relating to God as those under accusation, where we feel like we're defendants in a court of law. We're dragged in before God as the righteous judge in full view of the jury of our peers. And everything is at stake for us here. 
It's either freedom if we're truly innocent or punishment and condemnation if we're guilty. And it kind of only makes sense to think this way. The law isn't just an important framework for the people of Israel during biblical times. It's like this mindset is how our whole society is structured here in America. Not just actual courtrooms. Though it's certainly true, the courtroom mentality kind of shapes our imagination. We are a society, we love shows like Law and & Order and NCIS, and we do have a mass incarceration problem in this country. But I'm not just talking about like the actual law. I'm talking about this framework of being under the voice of accusation. I've been thinking a lot lately for my own life about what it means that the, that the devil is described as the accuser and the Holy Spirit is described as the advocate. In um, the end of the Bible, in Revelation chapter 12, the enemy of our souls, they describe him as this like dragon monster thing. And it says that at the end of all time, when he's hurled down, the ancient serpent called the devil gets hurled to the earth. And then I hear a loud voice in heaven say, now have come the salvation and power and kingdom of our God, the authority of his Messiah, for the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before God day and night has been hurled down. This is who the enemy is accuses us before God day and night. But Jesus describes his spirit as the advocate. This is in the book of John chapter 14, but the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name and will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I said to you. The spirit of Jesus' advocate thing, it's not just one place. It's over and over and over. We see at different places, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. The Spirit is interceding for us on our behalf, wordless groans. If I'm being honest, I know the voice of the accuser real well. It can be channeled through other people, sometimes maybe like a voice from my past, maybe a particular context that it feels louder than others. But for me at least, mostly it's alive and well in my own head, in my own voice sounds kind of like me. You are such a screw-up. You are never going to change. Just look at your long list of repeat mistakes. Everybody knows you're fooling yourself. You're a failing mess. Everybody can see it. Stop trying. I think we can get confused sometimes because the voice of the accuser is really loud and genuinely convincing. So we can assume that our God probably sees us the same way. As failures who will never measure up measure up. Um, And if that's true, if God sees us this way, then the goal of really proving ourselves before God and before others just feels really high stakes, especially if the wages of sin is death. Somebody said this also in our Thursday home group, that it can be hard to feel comfortable confessing sin in a society where confession of guilt actually means incarceration. That's not, like, that's the consequence of confession. So when God is holding the gavel, consequences, like our eternal future forever. There's so much at stake. It's so angsty, so anguished, so heavy. It's probably not wrong that God is ultimately the judge, but the voice of Jesus, guys, is so, so, so different than the voice of the accuser. The accuser is the enemy of our souls. Jesus is our advocate. What if we looked at our sin in the presence of the advocate instead of the accuser? We are not used to this. Sin is almost hand in hand with shame, accusation about who we are. But what if we did? What if we could just throw the voice of the accuser, including that loud voice in our heads, to the side, and we were able to look at our sin honestly without accusation, without condemnation? I think this would feel a lot like freedom. 
And this, I think, is where the courtroom metaphor falls apart. Because I don't think the spirit of Jesus is just like a divine defense attorney in a court of law who emphasizes our good aspects and really plays down the things we do wrong so we make a good impression on like judgy God. He's more of a break us out of jail kind of advocate than a public defender, I think. Um, I don't think we're like his clients. I think we're Jesus' family. Um, and we see this, and this is the last piece of Romans that we'll read together. Um, in Romans chapter 8, the spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Through the saving work of Jesus Christ, we don't just get to appease the angry judge in heaven that is God and convince, convince us to let him make the cut as we struggle the rest of our lives. We get adopted as God's children we take on his last name, his bloodline. We enter the household as family, continually being forgiven, continually belonging as we grow up into our fullest, most mature selves. Jesus, our advocate, sets us free from the accuser for good. Even though we're still sinners, even though leaving behind our sin patterns is still a work in progress, Jesus, our advocate, calls us family so we actually no longer have to live like we are on trial at all. We can live in the light, honest, not alone, at the table with Jesus and with others, moving toward greater and greater freedom for the rest of our days. I'm going to invite the worship team back up and invite up whoever is doing prayer call for today as well. And we have um, just up here some invitations for us to consider. The first is, I guess, to ask, where are you tempted to believe in a shallow salvation? Maybe it's um, temptation to believe the lie that you're not a you're really not a sinner anymore. You're not supposed to be, so you should feel really um, bent up out of shape about it. Or maybe you've gotten complacent and you've made peace with your sin patterns instead of perpetually walking toward maturity. Maybe you've been spending more time listening to the voice of the accuser than the advocate. Whatever it is, the invitation today is to repentance, to repent and believe the good news of Jesus' full salvation, that you are God's family, and that he's calling you to walk with him in the light of your salvation. Second invitation is to consider what, to consider and to actually name what the accuser has been speaking over you lately. I think sometimes to sift through the voices, it's helpful to know what God is not saying as well as what God is saying. So um, an invitation could be to take some time, maybe like, one practice I have sometimes is just you dump your brain. You write out on a piece of paper like the mean things that you're saying about yourself or the mean things that you feel like others have said over you just to put it somewhere. And then you look at it, you're like, oh, that's not true. It can be helpful. So if you want to do like a brain dump maybe, start there. And then to just sit in the presence of the advocate for a bit and behold what's messed up about you or what you can't get right in the presence of the advocate and hear what Jesus has to say over you. Um, and then the third invitation is to confess your sin and walk in the light I think something that can be helpful is to find a, a group maybe one other person you feel really safe with maybe two where you just get specific these are the things I'm struggling with you can put it in one of the buckets of the seven deadlies <laughs> the gluttony the whatever the other ones are <laughs> um, to name something and say look this is what I'm walking through and I'm pursuing freedom but in the presence of other people it can be a really powerful thing as we turn to worship and prayer ministry, 
the main invitation I think that I've been feeling on my heart for us as a church today is to leave the courtroom behind. I think um, we can all sit in a different seat, whether we're the jury, whether we're the seat of the accusing finger sometimes towards one another, um, busy as a judge kind of litigating what's right and what's wrong for other people. I think the invitation the Spirit is calling us to as a body of believers is to leave the courtroom behind, leave the voice of the accuser in your head, leave that whole system of sin and death behind and step into family, what family looks like with God, completely different context than a courtroom. So if you feel stirred up by that invitation, um, I just invite you to hold your palms up as a posture of openness to say, like, Lord, I've been, been in a courtroom lately, and it's tiring. God, we receive your freedom. In this moment, we receive your salvation, your deep, real, true salvation that is honest and that is permeating all things, the fullness of salvation that calls us children of God, no longer defendants, no longer accused or accusers or prosecutors or any of that. We are yours. I speak your salvation over those in particular who have been struggling with addiction and with particular things in their life that they don't want anymore. I speak freedom, the fullness of freedom, that the dead things would be dead for real, dead and gone. And even in this moment, even right now, as part of a body, we put on the new self afresh. We say we are created to be like Christ. We say yes to that identity. Yes to that identity, and we believe it. We believe it. We choose to believe it. That's who we are. That's who we are. And we move towards it. Freedom of the advocate's gaze. Josh is going to share some more words for prayer. If you're a prayer minister, I encourage you to come up towards this part. We're going to leave the kneelers today for anyone that wants to come and to do confession, to pray, uh, confessing sin to God and to others. So feel free if you want to even do that now. But there'll be also space for people to uh, experience prayer ministry as well. Uh, there's two things that Tina was talking about uh, that don't really happen in a courtroom that I want to do today. The first is to silence the voice of the accuser. Usually the accuser is allowed to talk. And in our faith, we can actually ask God to silence that person who's accusing us. And the second is to proclaim forgiveness over us. Anytime we talk about sin, we need to remember that we don't just get to confess sin. We also get to be forgiven. So I'm going to do those two things for us. Uh, and then I'm going to share a few specific words that people had for prayer. And again, if you want to step right now and get prayer, you're going to step and move to confession, you're free to do that as well. Let me just pray over us right now. Come Holy Spirit. I pray right now, thank you, God, that we do not have to listen to the voice of the accuser, but right now I silence the voice of the accuser, the one who would seek to intimidate, to scare, to say lies over us. If anyone resonated with the lies that Tina was sharing or if your own lies came into your head, we silence that voice in the name of Jesus and says it has no power. And we even pray for it to have no volume in Jesus' name. And we also proclaim forgiveness, knowing that anytime we confess sin, no matter what it is, 
even a pattern we're still struggling with, we can receive forgiveness, real forgiveness that cleanses us, that sets us free. So be forgiven in the name of Jesus. Be forgiven in the name of Jesus. Receive a blessing. Amen. There are just a few words that uh, people had today. I think they're really encouraging. And your next step would be to get prayer from someone that's up front. It's a great way just to say yes to what God is doing. The first was someone, I saw a picture of someone kind of bowing down or bending low to showcase unworthiness. And Jesus just came and lifted them up and embraced them. So if you feel like you've been kind of posturing yourself in a way of, I'm unworthy or I don't know what to do or feeling kind of sorry for yourself, Jesus wants to say, come, my child, come, my friend, and be with me. If that feels like an embrace you want, please receive prayer. There was also an image of a big brick that was just crushing someone, and it felt like the weight of their sin patterns or things they were struggling with. And what happened was not just this thing got flipped up, but actually just got lifted a little bit. But in that little bit, so much light came through. For some of you, there's a sense of, I don't know if God can do this today. I don't know if I can do this today. But there's just this sense of hope. And if you're feeling that hope and you want to partner with it, please stand with someone in prayer. The light of God can come through. The next thing was uh, a word that someone needed to be reminded of what it uh, feels like to experience freedom. Sometimes we imagine uh, hitting rock bottom, whatever that would mean for us. And the sense was actually... If you just are feeling a little bit comfortable, feeling a little bit okay, feeling a little bit all right with things that you're like, I don't know if I should feel all right about that, consider today your rock bottom. You can just choose, right? You can say, I want things to be better. You don't have to wait to get them worse. You can actually just say, come on, like, let's make it better today. I know sometimes we wait for it, right? Don't wait. Just come to Jesus. Last word uh, before we get to some healing is just a sense to remember We're not just asking God for forgiveness from someone above. If we say we follow Jesus, the Holy Spirit is within. And the Holy Spirit can remind us of who we are. We also believe that there's healing for us. I just felt like there might be people, even particularly today, that are struggling with headaches. And if that's you, we'd love for you to get some prayer. So we're going to have just a little short time to to do some worship, to get prayer. And also, if you want to step into some confession, you can course, turn to a friend. If you just want to confess before the Lord, feel free to use those kneelers and just to get right before God. I'm going to pray for us. We're going to have one last song of worship. God, right now, would you come into this space even more? Thank you again that you are the voice that is the voice of truth, that you are the God that forgives us, that you are the one that stands with us, God, and picks us up. Would you do that work today? Would you encourage us to get what we need from you? Give us courage and bravery to make something different today just because we choose to come to you. Not that we choose to be perfect, but we just come before you as we are. So I pray in worship and prayer and confession, we would choose to step towards you today. In Jesus' name, amen.